Listener Production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. Join us each week as we break down one issue in global politics so that you can understand what's going on in the world right now and what's likely to happen in the future. Our host, Dr. Keith Souter, is one of Australia's leading commentators on global affairs and geopolitics. My name is Sasha Barbagat. I'm a journalist. And this week, we are looking at the global superpowers of the future, as explored in a recent article by David Lai. Keith, first off, what does Lai mean when he says superpowers in this context? Yeah, so the phrase superpower was coined in World War II. The credit is given to Professor William Fox. So he identified at that time in 1944 that there were three countries that were superpowers, the United States, the Soviet Union, and the United Kingdom. And of course, the UK suffered serious economic problems after the war, and so its empire began to unravel and has largely now just disappeared. There are bits of real estate dotted around the world, like the Falklands, but the empire is gone. So this is a term that relates to the way in which a country is so big that just dominates um, the globe. Um, Now, we've had in previous eras um, big empires. We've had the Roman Empire. We've had the Chinese Empire in Asia. But they kept themselves to themselves. There was trade between Rome and, and China, trade between India and Europe, but fairly small, whereas In the era of superpowers, these countries are so big, they have a global reach and therefore can affect a lot of countries. So in the case of, for example, the British Empire, when Britain went to war against Germany in two world wars, automatically Australia was included, even though we're a long way away from the action. Nonetheless, we were immediately included. So that's an idea of the sort of the global reach of these superpowers. Yeah, and so I guess the idea that's explored in this is that superpowers, it's its a pretty recent kind of terminology, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, so what are the kind of countries that we're seeing at the moment or in the recent history being the big superpowers and why are they? Well, the, the two that um, he identifies in the article are uh, or were the United States and the Soviet Union. And, of course, the Soviet Union itself collapsed in 1991, so it stopped being a superpower. And it's worth bearing in mind that it lost about half of its population at that time. And of course, um, its gross domestic product also went down because productive areas like Poland and Ukraine became independent of the Soviet empire. So the Soviet Union disappeared on us. The United States was the sole superpower. And the period of, of that dominance runs from 1991 until 2001. So in terms of being the sole superpower, it's a very brief period of being number one. Not long at all, really. (laughs) And then, of course, uh, in 2001, we get 9-11 and the beginning of the Americans getting bogged down in Middle Eastern politics, which has simply drained its energy. And, of course, um, the United States has just finished fighting its longest ever war, which was Afghanistan, 20 years, and, of course, was defeated and um, very much humbled by the Islamic um, guerrillas that it was fighting. So what this article is now looking at is uh, the way in which China has now decided that it would like to become a superpower. So if you look back at Chinese history, they will say, well, we were a superpower. 
you go back long enough in history before you you Europeans came along with what's called the weird world. So the weird world is Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. Okay. So we're the weird world. Of course. In, the, <laughs> in UK, US, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, uh, Japan. It's a better way of, of describing the world rather than the first world, which was the earlier expression. The, you know, it's a typical American phrase, America has obviously got to be first, and the Soviet Union became the second world, and the third world was just this vast amount of humanity. Whereas uh, now we're talking about the weird world, and the Chinese are coming along and saying, well, you Europeans have been on the dominating the world scene for 500 years. Now it's China's turn to get back to being a, um, a senior player in world politics because it was at one point it was responsible for a third of global economic activity and that's what China's going back to at the moment. So, you know, you should always use the expression the return of China rather than the rise of China because China's been around already. So in this article, um, the argument is that you've got the United States still as a superpower but overcommitted and its energy has been drained away to a certain extent. Then you've got China coming up uh, to try to match the United States. And then looking even further into this century, India might also be a potential superpower. It already has the nuclear weapons, for example, and it has obviously a growing population. And one of the things we need to look at is, is what constitutes the criteria for being a superpower. But clearly, demography is important in this. It's difficult to be a superpower without having a large population. And, of course, the problem for China is that it's getting older and it, it is people are not having, it's youngsters, are not having enough children. And so uh, India will say, well, look, we're uh, still in the business of producing children. Our population is continuing to grow. And although it's not dealt with in this article, behind India you might end up with Africa. Yes, which we've that, spoken about quite a lot. Which we've spoken about this, yeah, yeah, and I keep warning people, keep an eye on Africa. Yeah. Okay, it's chaotic at the moment, there's a lot of bloodshed, et cetera, but just keep an eye on the potential rise of, of Africa. You just spoke about it um, briefly in terms of what Lai thinks the markers are of what a superpower needs. You touched on uh, demography. What are some of the other things that he thinks are needed for a country to be considered a superpower. Yeah, so in this article, he looks at the book by Paul Kennedy called The Rise and Fall of Great Powers. Paul Kennedy um, is a, an English historian, although I think now based at Yale in the United States, and he's a very good writer, so I like his material. In this article, he identifies the key factors. So one is geography, being in the right place in terms of history and geopolitics and at the heart of where the action is. And so since the end of the Cold War, we've seen a shift from the Atlantic to the Pacific. So the phrase that we've had over the last few decades is that the Mediterranean was the ocean of the past. You think of the Roman Empire, the Greek Empire. And then the Atlantic is the ocean of the present. And then the Pacific is the ocean of the future. Which so was, where would that incorporate, like right now, the Pacific? Well, obviously India mm -hmm. and, and China, particularly China. Yeah. Okay. And, of course, Japan, um, which is still the third largest economy in the world, even though it's full of old people. Yes. I don't want to be derogatory towards <laughs> no, not Japanese. At all. <laughs> um, but, um, but they're the leaders in robotics, and the reason they're leader in robotics is they said we don't want to bring in 
migrant workers from elsewhere. So they've said, we will develop computers. And so, so much of uh, their robotic work is, is done now in, in terms of, you know, aged care, picking up patients, et cetera. So geography is, is uh, on that list. And then the second one, of course, is population. So you need to have a large population. So in the case of Britain, for example, um, they were able to co-opt millions of colonised people. So you think particularly of India. So it was a small British population, some of which got exported to places like Australia um, or New Zealand or Canada and the United States. But then they also had the co-optation of the colonised subjects, particularly the, the Indians, who became almost more English than the English. I think, you know, if you go to the Lok Sabha, the, the parliament, and you listen to the oratory from the Indian politicians, it's a much higher level that you'll get at Westminster. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so that's how the British solved their population problem. The problem, of course, for the old Soviet Union is that they lost half the empire, uh, which is one of the reasons why we're talking about the decline of, of Russia. But China obviously is... Um, seeing itself as a major player. and we, So we have looked at the population dimension. Um, another dimension for this is the economy. And so you've got to have economic strength to match your military ambitions. And so obviously with the decline of Britain in two world wars, they bankrupted themselves fighting the Germans. And then, of course, more recently, we've had the collapse of the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union, since 1991, has had an economy about the size of Canada's. Right. That really has declined yeah. considerably. So somewhere between Canada and Australia. And, of course, if the sanctions continue against Russia, then it will find itself slipping even more down that international economic league table. So you've got to have a strong economy, although being rich is not, is not sufficient. And the article points out that even the United States found the cost of its wars in the Middle East and Afghanistan more than it felt ultimately able to bear. So, yes, you can be rich, but you've got to be ready for the long haul. So you've got to have the money and, and be ready to spend it over the long term. And another uh, dimension to this is the whole issue of resources. So you need to have uh, good resources, and both the US and the Soviet Union were well-placed in this regard. Uh, one of the challenges facing both China and India will be how they overcome their resource bottlenecks, for example, in energy and food, and I'd include water. There's not enough water in India to provide flushable toilets for everyone. Wow. So I don't know if you've ever been to India. No. It's a, you know, it's, it's a lovely country. Your mm. senses get overwhelmed. But I won't go into the details, but there are real problems with toilets or a lack thereof. In China's case, they're running out of water on the um, in China as well. So we've got a global water shortage, really. As people get richer, so they want to live a more elaborate and a cleaner lifestyle, even the English are having showers now. So it <laughs> <laughs> reflects their newfound wealth, yeah, uh, speaking absolutely. as an Englishman. Um, and um, so what is interesting is is that you've got these resource challenges, you know, such as water, um, and, you, and the article talks about energy and food. Um, Australia's lucky. We can uh, feed 60 million people, and we've only got 26 million in the country. So we're a major player in the exporting of food. But China is very vulnerable in terms of uh, the importing of food, 
and and of course energy. We've just heard this week that the Chinese are likely to ease up on the sanctions against Australian coal. So the Chinese have been mugged by reality. They've had a very cold winter and they've had energy shortages. And as we speak, they're having a very hot summer and there have been energy shortages. So the Chinese, with gritted teeth, have had to come back into the market to start buying good quality Australian coal. So those two countries which see themselves as the emerging superpowers, China and India, uh, don't inherently um, have the, the same sort of resource plenitude that we saw in the United States, which was seems to be blessed with everything. This helps to give the Americans this belief that somehow they are blessed uniquely by God <laughs> because of all their resources they mm-hmm. have. But they do have a hell of a lot of resources. You can't deny it <laughs> as much as you want to. You can't deny it. And there's also um, the one I found interesting was diplomacy in that list as well in terms of markers of a superpower because, you know, with China wanting to become a superpower, I mean, do they have many friends that can kind of help them achieve that status on the world stage? Well, that's why they went for the Belt and Road Initiative, Mm. um, which has been a reordering of the global economy with China at the centre. But it's quite clear that in some countries, and as we speak, the obvious one is Sri Lanka, where 10% of Sri Lanka's debt is now um, owed to China. And so you've actually got a bit of a reaction against China. So you're right, China is having difficulty winning friends and influencing people at the international level. So that will be certainly a limitation on them. You're listening to Global Truths with Dr Keith Souter. Thank you for your company this week as we look into the emerging superpowers of the world in an ever-changing global landscape. Now, Keith, in this article, Lyde does talk about what makes a superpower is constantly evolving. Why do you think that is? Well, I think because clearly if you look at military strength, which is on the original list that was given by uh, Dr. Paul Kennedy, clearly you can have a huge military force, but it's no guarantee you're going to win. If you look at the way in which the United States has fought since World War II, in fact, I think there have only been four outright American successes in war. And, and these have been in, in small territories with conventional operations, such as the invasion of Panama to uh, get Manuel Noriega, who uh, used to be on the CIA payroll, but then went rogue. And so George Bush Sr. went in to get him. So they've, they've only really had four outright successes. Others like Vietnam, Afghanistan, Iraq have turned out to be disasters. Um, so you can have this... Um, huge military force, but it's no guarantee you're going to win. So that's a a changing factor. Another changing factor might be the whole issue of the environment. And in this article, which we perhaps should um, again um, emphasise that it comes from David Lai, who is a senior fellow at SAMI. Uh, The SAMI consulting company is based in, in Britain but he's not speaking on behalf of the company. So what he's done is to look at some of the challenges that are coming up to the future. And what is interesting for me is that weaponry doesn't play a part. You know, in the old days, when you think about Britain having this huge military force that maintained international peace and stability between the Battle of Waterloo in 1815 and then the onset of World War I, which was 99 years later, and you had this fleet that went around the world. 
my grandfather saw was at the last big naval review, which was 1914. Wow. Uh, as a youngster. Yeah. And saw the ships on the horizon. And there were so many ships coming in front of the king on the horizon that you couldn't see both the, the beginning of the line and the end. It's incredible it, to think about, isn't it? It is. In so, today's but, but in fact, when you look at this article, um, the author doesn't even talk about military power. So for him, it's a question of um, access to resources. Um, and, of course, we have been talking about that so often, like the Russian invasion of Ukraine, et cetera, and what it's doing to global food supplies. You've got to be good at research and innovation. You've got to be agile and innovative, which I think is one of the weaknesses in Australia, that we're not that agile and innovative. Um, so that's certainly a, a key factor. And in fact, perhaps the next wave of warfare, I, I talk about warfare moving back and forth like a pendulum. And it may well be that in the new era, it's people with um, hand-launched guided missiles that will be the key factor. So rather than having this what's called the projection of power, somebody with a, um, a hand-launched guided missile can bring down a very expensive plane. Right. And, uh, or you could overwhelm a country with a swarm of um, uh, these sort of unmanned aerial vehicles. Then that's innovation again and being agile. So it means that you can have a large standing army, but it may not count for very much if you've got somebody who's very good at at defending their church. As I say, this is something which moves back and forth. My favourite example would be the French knights who were very good at fighting, but then the Welsh came along with their longbows and they were even better at firing arrows at those knights. So it, the pendulum of warfare swings back and forth. So World War I, trench warfare, World War II, the Blitzkrieg, the use of the tank. Now, of course, we have anti-tank weapons and people are saying when you look at the war in Ukraine, perhaps that it, we've come to the end mm. of the era of tanks. Right. Because you've got a Ukrainian soldier with a, a hand-launched missile can disable an entire tank. Well, and you only need one person to fly a drone really, right? <laughs> exactly. You know? Also on this list, I think we've got to note that um, environmental change is also very important. Again, it's a fairly new factor and the whole issue of um, well, what's going to happen now with the Arctic? We, we probably need to look at that um, as an issue at some point, the way in which the ice is melting around the North Pole, which means that eventually the Arctic will become a new Mediterranean and you can sail from Russia into Canada, etc. But it could also be a scramble for the resources under the North Pole. So th that's going to be a, another issue. And then, of course, back to the favourite topic that we all have, which is one of demography, you know, people and, and uh, numbers of people. So I might just say that David Lai of the Sammy Consulting Company, writing in a personal capacity, um, ends by saying, look, we're moving into a world that's inherently unstable. Um, it's a much more complicated world and therefore you should... Uh, have lots of scenario planners to help you think about the future, which coincidentally is what David Lai and I are both involved in. So That's why we have you. That's why we have you right here to talk us through it all. It is fascinating, Keith. Um, thank you for the breakdown and uh, thank you for your company. Thank you. Listener.